Hello and welcome back to the More Than Law podcast. I'm Miri Stitland, Knowledge Development Lawyer in the Commercial Real Estate team and I'm joined today by Andrew Parker, who's a partner in our construction team, Dan Cudlip, who's an associate in our construction team and Sarah Heatley, associate in our property litigation team. Welcome all. Hi, mate. Uh, nice to see you. So Andrew and Dan, we spoke around a year ago um, on the podcast. What have you been up to since then? in a nutshell <laughs> yeah well it's difficult to believe it's been a year it's flown by um and it's maybe a bit of a stretch to say that batting has taken over our lives but uh, it's not far off we've been pretty busy on a number of cladding disputes we've got two student accommodation blocks um five hotels and we just had an inquiry in for a, a residential tower so uh, and in each case acting for the developers or the owners of the building against the contractors and designers. So um, it's been a really interesting time and just shows that cladding really is still top of a lot of building owners agenda. And Sarah, do you want to give us a bit of a flavour about what you and the rest of the prop lit team have been up to in, in sort of that respect? Yeah, sure. So um, as well as assisting with some construction disputes from a more litigation side of things, we also spent a lot of our time advising freeholders and other building owners and developers and often residential management companies about their fire safety obligations. So that's according to their leases and also the relevant legislation like the 2005 fire safety order. Um, I've also been advising leaseholders and freeholders about cladding generally and external wall system remedial works and how those can be paid for. So you'll probably be aware that the government's introduced funding, but sometimes that funding doesn't cover everything. And so we've been advising about how the gaps can be filled and whether they, they can be legitimately passed on through the service charge which you probably read a lot about in the media and advising about consultation and dispensation processes that go with that. More recently, um, as I'm sure Dan and Andrew have also been doing, we've been doing a lot of advising about the new EWS1 forms that lenders are now routinely requiring and who has responsibility to get those for a building. So as listeners have probably already established, we're here today to talk about fire safety and um, obviously with a focus on cladding. Andrew, do you want to start us off by giving us an update on the Grenfell inquiry? Obviously, phase one focused on the factual narrative of the events on the night of the fire. Um, and the report was published at the end of October last year, with the government response coming in January of this year. So could you summarise the key findings and recommendations that were reached following phase one? Yeah, sure. Phase one was, as you said, um, a review of what happened at the outbreak of the fire, how the London Fire Brigade responded and how the, how the, the residents responded as well. The findings were really quite dramatic. I mean, the ultimate finding was, as we all know now, that the materials on the building were highly combustible and not suitable. And, the, and they reached that conclusion while you know, interviewing the various firefighters and putting together a timeline of how it, how it spread. And you know, it really is quite amazing that within the space of about half an hour from the call being made from the first flat, fire had spread out of that flat up the building from, I think it was the 16th floor, to the top of the building, over the top, and sort of starting to get down the other side in, in, in just over half an hour. 
So, and that shouldn't have happened under the original refurbishment of the building because it was, a, it was supposed to be a concrete clad building and, and this refurbishment clearly highlighted the fact that the compartments were combustible. So those were the, the findings that the materials were wrong and also there were some um, shortcomings in the response service. So the recommendations that flowed from that were to ensure that there were sufficient details about the um, buildings, the materials for the building and the safety routes and the plans for the firefighters. Because one of the things that the firefighters found was that they turned up on site and the, the, the fire was reacting in a way that they had never seen before because the materials were um, so combustible. So education on, on, on different kinds of materials, being able to find their way around, having lifts that worked properly for the firefighters themselves. Uh, and those on the, on the other end of the line, the telephone people, um, reacting to the emergency calls um, those were the things which recommendations were put in now phase two having established that the, the the materials were wrong is going to look at how was it that decisions were made that led to a you know a high-rise building having such combustible material on it and they're going through that process right now and there's they're interviewing various companies. The ones that are currently in the hot seat, almost sort of as we speak, are Celotex, who are the um, company uh, responsible for the insulation. And the, the evidence that's coming through there is really quite shocking um, as to how those companies really placed profits ahead of safety and uh, um, found loopholes in the various regulatory systems and the testing requirements to recommend products which clearly weren't suitable for the building. So the phase two, um, I mean, the both the phase one has been, has been incredibly enlightening as to what happened and what the cause was. Phase two for the construction industry is going to be um, particularly interesting because it's really going to shine a light on how the materials are tested, what design choices should be made and where the regulations have got a flaw. So we're all we're all watching very eagerly as to how that pans out. So to give an example of some of the sharp practice that phase two of the inquiry is exposing, Celotex have a, uh, a witness in the box right now and he has explained how the RS500 product, which was is an insulation product that was used on Grenfell, that was when that was being tested the first test failed and then in a second test between the external cement board and the um, internal insulation layer they inserted a layer of uh, magnesium oxide board which is fire resistant that was concealed and um, probably delivered a pass in the second test then the use of that that board was removed from marketing materials so it wouldn't have been obvious from um, people purchasing that product that the test pass was delivered by using this magnesium oxide so i mean that's an example of the, the fraudulent practice you might call it that was uh, at least prevalent in sellotex and perhaps across the industry and it shows the importance of people now asking for the actual test data and the test drawings and not relying on marketing material which is something we're seeing there's um a lot of commentary from the fire brigade and the fire brigade union who are unhappy uh, along with some mps such as uh, david lammy with the coverage this is receiving in comparison to some of the coverage in the press that the fire brigade's conduct was receiving this time last year it, it's not in the mainstream media really this Celotex example whereas i think it's a 
pretty outrageous thing to have happened. So there is new regulation being introduced in response to recommendations which were made following the Hackett review into building regulations and fire safety. That's the building safety bill. And it's being talked about as a major piece of legislative reform to fundamentally improve building and fire safety. That's primarily to ensure residents will be safer in their homes. So, Sarah, what are the headline points about that new piece of legislation and when can we expect it um, to come onto the statute books? Yeah, I think, as you say, it is a really important piece of legislation, particularly because at the moment, the legislation that actually puts duties on building owners in respect of fire safety towards residents of buildings is quite old. So we've got the Fire Safety Order 2005 and also the Housing Act 2004. And they're not really fit for purpose anymore, particularly with the information that we now have following the Grenfell tragedy. Clearly, for example, the fire safety order was brought into force in 2005 and actually it was primarily intended for commercial premises. And so residential occupants of buildings have, in terms of legislation, been a second thought. So the fire safety bill, which we're hoping should receive royal assent in autumn next year, it's quite a slow process, unfortunately, um, will make leaseholders and residents of residential blocks the primary focus and it's certainly intended that it will apply to all high-risk residential buildings so that will be any building of at least 18 meters high or more or more than six stories above ground level and that's if they contain two or more dwellings so it's going to be most residential high-rise blocks. What the draft bill will do is it will place obligations on a newly created role of the accountable person who will be the person identified who's responsible for repairing the common parts of any high risk building and really importantly as it stands the fire safety order doesn't specifically include cladding and external wall systems so there's very often an argument as to whether cladding and external wall systems forms part of the common parts for the purposes of the order. And so this bill is going to specifically include those areas of a building in the definition of common parts. It means that the current inconsistency in practice and uncertainty, um, a lot of my work is certainly dealing with the scope of the older legislation, um, will be taken away, making it easier for people to enforce and for building owners to understand actually what they have to do. The accountable person will be responsible for also assessing building safety risks and that should actually include the need to carry out testing for the EWS1 process. They'll also have to appoint a building safety manager, they'll have to prepare and register a building safety case with a newly formed building safety regulator and there'll be mandatory incident reporting and they'll have to prepare and implement a resident engagement strategy. So you can see that residents of residential blocks of flats really will be, or hopefully, at the forefront of this legislation. It will really help make it clearer as to what owners have to do to keep residents safe. And from my perspective, there's also one other important thing that will be implemented which will 
deal with the costs associated with the new obligations. And it's intended that new implied covenants will be put into leases and introduce a new kind of parallel category of service charges called building safety charges, which is quite interesting from a property litigation perspective. And then rules about how the charges can be demanded will probably be implemented into leases, whether they currently contain that information or not. And so that will need careful consideration by property litigators um, and is in kind of an important aspect of the new bill. This new legislation will hopefully make it clearer and easier to compel freeholders to investigate and fix dangerous cladding, particularly because I heard on the radio yesterday that this issue is affecting more than a third of the high rise residential blocks in the UK, which is a really surprising statistic, I thought. And you mentioned there the EWS. So we've got the EWS1 form, which is an external wall fire review form introduced last year with the intention to provide consistency as part of the valuation process for mortgages of residential properties in apartment buildings um, of 18 metres or above. And essentially what the form confirms is that a suitably qualified surveyor has carried out a fire risk assessment on the external wall construction of the building. Dan, can you um, explain a bit more around the EWS1 form? Yep, sure. I think a couple of uh, key points to, to note, um, to get into the detail, are that it, it's not a, the EWS form and obtaining it is not a statutory process. The EWS1 form was introduced and agreed by the RICS and then two key UK mortgage lending bodies, the Building Societies Association and UK Finance. Whether a form is the form is needed uh, is dictated not by legislation but by individual uh, mortgage lenders' lending policy. The form will last for five years, so if you obtain one, one need not be obtained for another five years and only one form is needed per block. Uh, it's not that you need a form for each individual unit. If the building that you're buying in falls within the scope of the EWS, or sorry, the unit in the building that you're buying falls within the scope of the EWS one form, your lender will want to see the form. But that is, puts the obligation on the seller of the unit to obtain it or procure it rather, because it is only building owners that can uh, that can instruct and obtain an EWS one form uh, and that is causing problems which we'll come to uh, shortly. Yeah I think that's a really important point and my myself and colleagues in property litigation have found that we're getting inquiries from leaseholders and residence management companies seeking advice about whose responsibility it is to undertake and then pay for the EWS one process and that as always um, largely depends on what the underneath is say and who has responsibility under the legislation so as it stands it can be quite hard to compel a freeholder to undertake the testing needed and I think this goes back to what I was saying before about the changes in the law which will hopefully make that clearer and impose explicit responsibility on someone to carry out this testing and get the um, relevant certification. So it's not every every block that that's the EWS one form applies to. The um, there's there's two categories. Uh, the first is where a block is um, 
as a story over 18 meters uh, with some form of combustible material in either the external wall system or, or external, ele external elements like balconies. Um, the second category is uh, buildings under 18 meters which have a specific concern. So that might be a, say a four to six story building where there is combustible material in the in external wall system or on balconies uh, that, that presents a, a larger than normal risk. That is proving problematic too because I think lenders are taking a very cautious approach and so they're asking for the EWS one form to be completed on buildings under 18 meters or six stories and also they're asking for it where there's a slight risk that there might be combustible materials used in the external wall system but where that is unlikely. So one of the issues with the forms is sort of fundamentally that flat owners without having the form their homes are valued at zero and you mentioned earlier that it's only the building owner who can actually uh, who can initiate the, the procedure of, of getting the form. What are some of the other issues that we're seeing with the forms in practice since they've been rolled out? Uh, so there is a, a shortage of experts um, capacity to carry out the surveys necessary to complete the forms. Those who may carry out the surveys uh, must be one of the 21 uh, or a member of the 21 trade bodies or you know, um, organisations listed on the RICS website. So there's a limited pool to draw from. And the form is difficulties in obtaining the form are causing real problems. Mortgage brokers that have been surveyed uh, are saying that they're seeing a, a high amount of transactions um, falling apart uh, and becoming abortive because these because the forms can't be obtained because of building owner reticence or shortage of experts. And then also because the form is completed and option B2 is selected and a host of remedial works are required. And so, you know, uh, the mortgage lenders don't lend uh, and, and buyers don't want to buy. And, and so, anecdotally, we've heard that sort of uh, cautious lenders are requiring them for all buildings and not just the two categories which which you talked about earlier. That's right. I suppose some of that comes because it may not be possible to establish um, whether combustible materials are present present in the external wall system until a survey has been carried out and lenders want that survey to be carried out in the ambit of an EWS one form. And then a guidance in 2020 um, released by the government required the consideration of fire safety uh, on all blocks and I think that is what has pushed lenders to be extra cautious and if there's a, any hint of combustible materials being present then lenders want that want the form uh, there's even examples uh, I think it's on the RICS website of even a building of between one and three stories uh, requiring the EWS one form if the type of use significantly increases the risk of life in the event of a fire. So for example, a one to three story care home that might have combustible materials in the external wall system will or may require the form depending on the lender's policy. 
I mean, through no fault of its own, the the inquiry has created, in a sense, a perfect storm of establishing that there was a serious problem within the construction industry in terms of the design and choice of materials for cladding systems. And they've established that. They're in the process of working out what we do about it. And so we're all left a little bit in limbo. And to an extent, lenders are reacting in um, an overcautious way by requiring things, you know, just as, as an abundance of caution, which, you know, is understandable in, in, a, in a climate of uncertainty, but it doesn't help, you know, building owners, uh, flat owners who purchase their properties with the relevant building control sign off and with the relevant paperwork. So it really is um, an unfortunate and unsatisfactory situation at the moment. So there has been some attempt to sort of clarify the position in respect of the EWS1 forms in recent days from the government. Sarah, can you just explain what's been happening? Yes, on Saturday the 21st of November, the government published a press statement um, to say that it had come to an agreement with UK Finance, which is the trade body for banks, the Building Societies Association, which is the body that represents building societies, and RICS, to say that leaseholders would no longer require EWS forms for buildings without cladding. That may sound obvious, but we have heard anecdotally from our transactional um, team colleagues that some leaseholders without cladding or balconies with combustible material present have been asked to provide an EWS form before they can sell. The RICS has responded to the uh, to the government's uh, actions over the weekend um, by setting out that it will consider um, MHCLG's latest guidance note uh, and update um, the RICS guidance and practices in light of that note in or around January 2021. I suppose one point that does still bear consideration though is that lenders can impose their own requirements for, for mortgage lending. Yes, I think that's right. As it stands, lenders can still demand whatever they want to, to get comfort um, for themselves when they're lending. It's hoped that once some lenders raise their head above the parapet, as it were, then others will fall into line. And given that there are about 30,000 buildings of 88,000 residential buildings over 11 metres high in the country without cladding, and so not requiring EWS form under the new government advice, that will really help speed things up for those buildings who do have cladding and do need an EWS1 form. So I think it's all moving in the right direction, hopefully. Where remedial works have been identified as needing carried out, what are the options then for, for paying for them? Andrew, do you want to just talk us through that? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're a homeowner, um, there may be an NHBC policy or equivalent latent defects insurance policy which responds as i mentioned that that isn't guaranteed uh, the insurance companies haven't decided on mass how they're going to respond to these situations so it'll depend very much on your individual circumstances i'm afraid as to what the cause of the um, problem is and uh, what the terms of your policy are if you're a building owner that was responsible for procuring the, the design and construction of the building, then you should have contractual uh, rights to pursue those contractors or designers who 
uh, in error specified and installed incorrect materials. Um, that isn't, uh, I mean, the, the case will also be if, if you've purchased a building, uh, then in an ideal world, you have collateral warranties to those parties as well. And that's what a lot of the work that we're doing are acting for those, those people that have a contractual route. And uh, that gets you to first base, um, but you have to establish the, the, the breach in the first place. And then the remedial solution is not straightforward, unfortunately, because do you remediate to um, existing standards and query quite what are those at the moment? It's a matter of detailed expert opinion. Or is it the, the standards that were in place at the time of the contract, but those, as we know, are now out of date and unsafe. So, as I said before, it's 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 an unsatisfactory situation because through no fault of their own, a building owner finds that he's having to spend a lot of money, quite often upfront, to carry out a remedial solution and save his argument with the contractor or the designers for another day. What we're finding is that insurers are just like lenders as an institution, very nervous about quite where the liability sits and not particularly amenable to early settlements, uh, which is the, the quickest and cheapest way for resolving the dispute. So the, the, the process can become quite drawn out, which is again, understandable because it's so complicated, but is not, not helpful for the, the poor building owner. And Sarah, what other considerations are there from a kind of landlord-tenant point of view? Yes, so a lot of work that we've been doing is where there's no obvious route against a third party, like the ones that Andrew's touched on. So that's where um, the costs appear to have to be met by the building owner. And obviously, when costs in, in blocks of flats arise, usually uh, the freeholder passes those on through the service charge. Um, and that's not always straightforward here. Um, helpfully, to an extent, the government's introduced two funds. So one for the really dangerous uh, Grenfell-style ACM material um, and the, another for all different types of dangerous material. So that's cladding and dangerous insulation behind that. Um, and that's been covered lots in the media. Um, and that funding may well cover the remedial work itself but it's not going to cover the interim measures that the fire brigade often put in place. As soon as dangerous materials identified, they will often say, right, you need to instantly put in place a waking watch, which is a or a number of fire marshals who patrol the building 24 seven. And then if a fire breaks out, they'll deal with evacuation. And also coupled with that, sometimes a communal fire alarm system needs to be put in place. And the government fund is not um, going to cover that. So at that stage, a building owner, if he doesn't have obvious recourse to a third party will think, I need to think about passing on this cost, unfortunately, to to leaseholders. And that will very much depend on what the lease says. Also, you need to think about whether you need to carry out consultation before you can carry out these works. So that's if the works are going to cost a certain amount per leaseholder, or if, the, say, the waking watch contract is going to last for longer than a year and cost more than £100 per leaseholder, then you need to consult, and that has strict rules. 
and it may mean that recoverable costs are capped. Uh, you can also you can seek dispensation from the tribunal, but you can see that if there's no obvious recourse and these things need to be done instantly, um, as quickly as possible after dangerous material has been found, it's a minefield um, for building owners and leaseholders as to what needs to be done and whether the costs can properly be recovered from leaseholders. So the last time we spoke on the podcast, Dan, we talked about the Building Safety Programme. Can you give us a bit of a recap on that and just update us on how many properties have now been remediated under that programme? Yeah, sure. So the the Building Safety Programme, as a reminder, is uh, a government-led organisation that is keeping tabs on the number of high-rise properties in the country with cladding systems that contain um, aluminium composite materials that are unlikely to meet the building regulations. During our last podcast, we, I noted that in, on the third, as of the 31st of August 2019, 111 high-rise residential and publicly owned properties had uh, completed remedial works, including hotels and student accommodation, which left 324 outstanding out of a total of 435. So since then, a further 24 high-rise buildings with ACMs unlikely to meet the building regulations have been discovered, taking the total up to 459. And as at the 31st of October 2020, 202 buildings had had work completed and an additional 55 had had the ACM cladding removed, which left 202 yet to remove their cladding. Last year, we noted that there were over 20 high-rise properties with the ACMs on them in Greenwich, in Tower Hamlets, and in Salford, and they remain among the worst areas. Uh, Tower Hamlets is the worst overall, with still over 20 buildings contain, uh, containing ACMs uh, yet to be remediated. And then outside of London, Salford is the worst performing area. Uh, and still has between 11 and 20 properties uh, with ACM still present on the uh, in external wall. Worth noting that the uh, the social sector is the best performing and the private resi sector is the worst performing in terms of remediation. And there are just four student halls with ACMs on them and 11 hotels with ACMs on them left. The building safety programme only, only considers buildings uh, clad in aluminium composite materials uh, so it's not taking account of properties that have uh, other materials such as flammable insulation or high pressure laminates in their uh, external wall systems. So the, uh, the general problem, the general picture across the country is still not great. With that in mind, Andrew, do you just want to finish us off by talking about where you think the sort of focus is going to lie over the next year or so? I guess to a major extent, that's going to be driven by the report that's going to be published following phase two of the Grenfell Inquiry. Yeah, I think the Grenfell Inquiry will dominate activity in this area. Uh, Who knows quite when it's going to finish. There have been various delays as we've gone along as the people giving evidence wanted assurances that they wouldn't be prosecuted on a criminal basis. And on the basis of the evidence we've been seeing most recently you can understand why those assurances have been made so I think the latest predictions are that the report may not come out until the end of 2021 early 2022 so we'll be getting 
uh, drip fed evidence as it goes along, but that will be very informative in itself. And I think the early stages of phase two are going to focus on the testing uh, regime for materials and the regulations surrounding what materials are deemed to be safe. And, and even though there won't be any conclusions reached until you know, end of 21, 2022, I think hearing that evidence um, will be very informative and it might give the industry an idea as to what kind of direction it's going in. And there clearly will be now, after phase one, uh, an emphasis on ensuring that as built drawings, so the drawings that are produced after the building is completed are accurate and up to date. You'd think that would be obvious, and um, but it's it's a failing of the construction industry that those as built drawings, whilst they've been produced, have just not been up to standard. And uh, so it makes it much more difficult for someone coming to a building knowing to know what quite what they're facing if they haven't got accurate as built drawings. So I think that over this next year, in the course of construction projects, there will be a greater emphasis on recording what's there, probably monitoring as it's as it's going along and ensuring that everybody understands what building they're facing if there is, uh, God forbid, another uh, sort of Grenfell tragedy. Thank you all so much for joining me today. If listeners would like to access any of our other podcasts, they're available on our website, forsters.co.uk, along with a variety of other news and views from across the firm you can also find us on linkedin facebook instagram and the podcasts are also available on soundcloud apple podcasts and various other podcast provider platforms Podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on, or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The more than all podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.